0: Ohio habla es un podcast que nace del proyecto Narrativas Orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos in Ohio. Exploramos la experiencia latina con entrevistas en español, inglés y Spanish. Welcome to Ohio habla. I'm Elena Fallis and today I'm talking with Professor Soria Colomer. Dr. Soria Colomer is an assistant professor of bilingual education at Oregon State University. Committed to transforming the educational landscape for marginalized youth, her research explores the negotiation of language and identity in new immigrant communities. Soria, bienvenida a Ohio y a nuestro episodio sobre este tema tan importante de la educación bilingüe. Muchísimas gracias. I'd like to start by asking you um, to tell us a little bit about yourself. Did you grow up on the West Coast? Oh, not at all. Um, Actually, I grew up in New Orleans.
1: My parents are Honduran immigrants, and I was born and raised in New Orleans and um, pretty much lived in the South my entire life until I moved to uh, the Northwest in
0: Corvallis. Okay, great. Um, What was your um, educational experience experience like? Uh, Did you attend bilingual programs or any program that supported bilingualism?
1: No, actually I um I didn't have formal education perhaps um in another language until high school. Mm-hmm. Um but like I like to tell my students um I grew up in a household where Spanish and English was spoken all the time and like many immigrant families um we we negotiated that space between learning English and maintaining our Spanish. Um so although not formally, informally at home, I had that space. Mm
0: -hmm. Did you feel that um, Spanish when you were growing up was also a language that you could use in public spaces?
1: Um, Yes and no. Um, Yes, because I did with my family, Mm -hmm. but there were those instances where I was out with my mom and we'd be chit-chatting and just minding our own, grocery shopping Mm -hmm. or whatever, and we'd hear people say, oh, I wish they spoke English, or these people should speak American, those kind Mm -hmm. of comments. So I did grow up around that. Um, But in New Orleans, there is diversity. And so, um, well, it's interesting, right? Because even in those spaces, that did happen. Mm -hmm. So I was aware of, of like, the hierarchies of language. Although, of course, at the time, I didn't call it that, right? Right, But I I knew Mm -hmm. that there was something... Mm -hmm. um, I was aware of, of those those power differentials Attitude in languages. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Over the past few months here in Ohio, we had gathered um, educators across our state to talk about the importance of retaining and developing Latino and Latina teachers to serve our Latino and Latino students. We held a type of World Cafe conversation uh, with educators um, just last spring to determine best practices, and we hosted a Latino Education Summit here at Ohio State in partnership with the Ohio uh, Ohio Commission on Hispanic and Latino Affairs. And in a recent study, you found that uh, tensions arise when, uh, quote, Latinx teachers attempt to define their identity in social spaces where their languages, bodies, and names, among other markers, are racialized when read by others. As we consider growing our own Latinx educators, how might we also equip programs to understand the new generation of teachers they or we are are training? Yeah, Uh, first
1: of all, Awesome that you're having these summits. I when I um when I heard of that you you and I we, we've spoken about that a little bit before mm-hmm. this program. I just thought, "Oh, I wish I could have been here because those are amazing conversations right. to be a part of." Um but as for the research, uh I'm thinking of one study in particular where I worked with um six Latina teachers, Latinx teachers, um some self-identified as Latinx. And um it was a year, I, I followed them for a year in ethnography for a year with these teachers um, in a in a, a new Latinx community, mm-hmm. right? So, and I think that makes a difference. Sometimes we we don't consider that context, but I think context makes a huge difference in how we define our identities and how folks look at us. So in this time, I, I uh, worked with six uh, Latinx teachers and um, some were es mi gente, Mm-hmm. Like I've been through this as mi gente, I need to be there for them. Mm-hmm. And others uh, had gone through a different, uh, like, acculturation assimilation process, mm-hmm. and so they weren't quite there. If anything, they were um, very aware of of that power differential that I was talking about, right? Mm-hmm. But their response to that was creating a distance. They were protecting them themselves and then creating their dis- a distance. And in their mind, what was the best for students was to – because their experience had been um, sink or swim. Mm -hmm. That's what they provided for their students Mm -hmm. uh, instead of uh, embracing their language and feeling that they could flow through languages um, in their classroom. So um, I'm thinking – there's an example – Hmm. How can I say this? so for example, there's one teacher who um she was born and raised in Cuba, and she came to the United States as a child with her parents um and the irony is that she didn't self identify as a latina mm. um and it was when I went to her principal looking because I was searching for participants for mm-hmm. a study, and um the principal she said you know you have you're asking these teachers that self-identify as Latina, but I think this person's also a Latina. And I went and I asked her to be in my study, and she goes, I don't identify as a Latina, but I'm happy to help you. Mm. And I thought, oh, in my definition, you totally do. So if you're willing, this is great, right? Right. And um, again, born and raised in Cuba. And um, so I observed her classroom, and when I introduced myself and told the students why I was there, the students were like, wait, you speak Spanish to their teacher because she'd never um, shared that with the students. Mm. And she's like, yes, yes, I do. But you're here in the States, and in order to uh, be successful in the United States, you need to speak English. I'm going to speak English with you. And that's just the way it is. Mm. And it was ironic because the principal was placing newcomers, even, Mm -hmm. right, in her classroom thinking, oh, well, they'll – they'll have a support system in mm-hmm. there and it just didn't work out that way for these students. Um and it wasn't until the last interview, so I had built a relationship with this person um and some confianza over the mm-hmm. course of the year and she said, you know, I'm gonna learn Spanish with my, my my daughter's now taking Spanish and I'm going to learn Spanish with her. So there I realized that there was a lot of pain mm-hmm. um that there was a loss there. And that she was coping the best way she could. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think, and at first, my initial reaction was, oh, why are we putting students in our classroom? This is devastating, right? But now, looking back, um, and I'm glad that I mulled through those data for a while. Because I didn't want to tell that story just like that. Mm -hmm. I knew there was something more there. Like, what are the power structures? What... What is positioning her to do that? And I think that's really what leads my research a lot, Mm -hmm. to think deeper, right? Because the easy thing is to say good teacher, bad teacher, Mm -hmm. and it just doesn't quite work that way. Mm -hmm. What is it that causes us to make these choices uh, in all of us, right? Um, So what I'm really um, uh, like a theoretical framework that's really speaking to me right Mm -hmm. now is um, racial literacies, and I've been reading a lot of the work of Howard Stevenson, who's at UPenn, and his work um, helps us to understand that. At least this is my interpretation of it, and this is how I've I framed it. I've um, used his theoretical framework and also drawn from some Latinx theories, because as a Latina working with Latino populations, I'm like I have to like um, draw on the wisdom of right. Latinx folk. Mm -hmm. right? Um, It just makes sense for me to use those ideologies to better understand the the folks with whom I'm working and using these notions of um, mascaras, Mm -hmm. of masking and unmasking. And I think these theories work well together because we, I think it's almost like a survival survival skill Mm -hmm. to read the world of, okay, when is it safe for me to be me, Mm -hmm. right? And I think what I'm, My push, and I guess maybe I'm a little... um, (laughs) What I'm hoping to to say is we need to work together in community because it isn't just about Latinas and Latinos and Latinx um, knowing when to mask and unmask. It's creating a societal change, going back to... It's not about teacher being good, being bad. What's the social force causing folks to uh, feel that they have to change? Mm-hmm. So how can we get society to be more um, understanding and compassionate with each other? Mm-hmm. But before we get there, a step is that we have to be compassionate with ourselves. And I think that there's a healing process in, um, in first understanding like what you've let go, what you've compromised, because there's a lot of pain there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think of that Cubana because right. uh, it would be easy to judge her. But when you really listen to or ask, well, what was it like for you going through as a little Cubana in a very uh, white world where you felt, because she went to, a, I think it was Connecticut or somewhere that didn't have mm-hmm. a lot of Latinos at the mm-hmm. time, and she felt lost, right? and she felt very disconnected from her community. Mm-hmm. So when she did her parents did move to Miami, um, her response was those like Cubans they were loud and they were <laughs> right. And the, you'd think like those were her people, but mm-hmm. she felt so lost because she'd been disconnected so she didn't know how to interact. Mm-hmm. So her way of of feeling safe was just to cling on to what she could, mm-hmm. right? And this the community really didn't allow for her to embrace who, her, who, her, her her, her, heritage. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something else that I really worked through with um, our mm-hmm. teachers in understanding that culture isn't fixed. Our identities aren't fixed. They're ever-changing. Um, so another teacher that I observed, she had some newcomers in her class, and it happened to be that she had some Guatemaltecos in her class. And in the textbook, it said that they were like Choc- some, some small community in Guatemala ate chocolate tamales, <laughs> right? Which I'm from Honduras and like I'd never heard of that. One. I was like, you know, because Central America, we kind of like, know each other's stuff, I guess. I don't know, right? <laughs> but, um, and she looked at, she asked this child when I was observing, like, have you ever had chocolate tamales? And he kind of looked like, I've never heard of chocolate tamales. Mm-hmm. And she's like, look, he's already lost his culture. And I'm thinking, of course, as, <laughs> Sometimes uh, as an observer in a classroom, you kind of like just kind of go, because uh-huh, you don't want to like change the dynamics too much. Mm-hmm. But I was thinking like, is he expected to know everything that's in All Guatemala? Right. <laughs> like how old is he when he left? Like mm-hmm. what are we holding him accountable for? And, um, and I'm thinking he's trying to survive here. And his culture is a bit of Guatemala and a bit of the United mm-hmm. States. And it's not just Guatemala. And the irony is that this particular teacher was Puerto Rican. And um, she had to go through her own survival uh, or ways of surviving um, culturally. Mm -hmm. So she, you know, for her, um, when she defined, like, Latina, for example, Mm -hmm. for her, being Latina, um, oh, gosh, how did she put it? She said, being Latina is hispanic with a lot of hoopla i'm like what do you mean by that you know and she goes for example when i go out i dress up latina (laughs) right so this is like an identity that she put on and i thought what does that look like she goes they put on their wife i put on my wife beater t-shirt my tight capri pants my heels my big hoops i gel my hair and I'm thinking, is that what she thinks Latina is? Like, is it only identified in that mm-hmm. image?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and that's something, in my opinion, or my perspective of seeing that, is that she's bought into this majoritarian tale right. of what, uh, and a very limited stereotypical
0: image mm-hmm. of. Mm-hmm. Right.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where I think racial literacy comes in to understand. How is it that we're read? How is it that we read ourselves? Mm-hmm. Um, how can we recast that image? How can we reframe what that is mm-hmm. and then come to resolve and um, these microaggressions, like uh, see them for what they are, see how they hurt us, but then also see how we can love and be compassionate with mm-hmm. ourselves and with others to move beyond them. Mm-hmm. And in my classroom, what I try to do is I try to have conversations with, like, community, with all of our students. Um, because you never know who the Latino is or who the white student is. Um, um, for Another, uh, recently in a class that I teach, I had my students self-identify, set themselves in groups and self-identify their groups. And there was a small group of... Um, of, of mixed race students, there's a small group of Latinx, and then a huge group of white students. And I kind of giggle because they're such good preservice teachers that they know, like, a big group, they're not going to get like the same dynamic. So they kind of like made themselves like little groups in, of white, folk <laughs> right? And I'm like, okay, kind of a little different than what I had imagined, but they get the point. Mm-hmm. And then when we got to large group and we shared, um, I had one student who self-identified as white. And if you saw her, she's very, she looks, she looks very Irish background, very white all of her like features mm-hmm. and, and then her skin tone. When she starts speaking and sharing her story that her mom is Mexican um and her dad isn't. <laughs> and she just happened to look like her dad and her brother happens to look like her mom. And she starts to get really sad and I'm like, what was that like for you growing up? She goes, We never spoke Spanish at home. I've lost I never had the opportunity to learn a language. And I'm like, what was it like being a big sister? She goes, you have no idea how many fights I was in defending my brother because mm-hmm. everything he went through. And she starts to cry. Mm-hmm. And so there's pain there. Right. And then another student speaks up, and she's like, well, I'm like 564th Native American or mm-hmm. you know, this, this small percentage, but yet she holds on to this percentage. But she's been told so many times not to mark the box. Or she, she doesn't know how to claim it. and, and but, right? So there's that tension there. And then another, I had at least four students who self-identified as white who started to share their story. Mm. And then I have, you know, in conversation, the students who self-identified as, as, as uh, one particular student who identifies as Latino, like, I never would have known. Like, mm-hmm. I, I never would. And after I have activities like that, the students are like, we're, we're more diverse than we realize. Right. Mm-hmm. And those are conversations that I think are really important to have. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. This is important. Um, I mean, it makes me think of so many things, right? Uh, first of all, compassion, right? Mm-hmm. Having compassion for um, the different experiences of people and the choices that they make that we don't know the backstory. We don't know. Um, I think one of the things that we're um, familiar with um, that we, uh, when we talk to um, Latinos and Latinas um, about growing up in in Ohio, and, spe- and, and and it might vary a little bit uh, with generation. But one of the things that that I hear often is that, um, well, you know, the message that their parents received when they moved to the U.S. is that the only way to be successful is to learn English and and, and assimilate and sort of um, in a way try to really um, not forget, but Mask your culture, right? So, so then that's the message they received. So, therefore, when they had children, they wanted them to be, you know, to not have an accent in English, right? I remember those, I've had these conversations with people, right? Um, and so those, those things, you know, are. Uh, those experiences we need to be compassionate about that like what was it that drove your parents to not speak spanish to you or what were your what was the community like i mean if you're in connecticut or vermont i mean is it is it you know how are you going to continue to um uh cultivate your language and culture in a place that um where you don't see that outside of your home maybe right um so that's one of the things that even within the i don't know the last 10 years i i become even more compassionate towards um you know just other experiences and learning and learning to listen to others people's stories and and at the same time having children that are my own daughters that are biracial right <clears throat> and they they uh, look more like um the white majority and and i was having a conversation with somebody about like when i fill out forms for them I check Latina, right? Right now I'm making that choice for them. But later they're, they're going to have to make that cho- choice for themselves when they go to college or whatever, um, uh, job applications or whatever they fill out. Um, and so how that also plays into how I choose right now for them, um, but then later they can, they're going to make that decision. I think that's so interesting because, okay, two points. One,
1: I was the child, and so was my brother, whose teachers told our parents to speak English at home. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think the teachers were, for, they were well intentioned. Right. They, they really, truly believed that, um, that that's how we were going to learn English. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and maybe that's, part of the impetus for who I've become and why I've become, uh, you know, an educational linguist. Mm -hmm. And I often find myself telling my students, like, if there's anything you've learned, please do not tell your parents that they need to speak English at home, Mm -hmm. right? Let them enjoy their language. Let them enjoy their culture. Understand that these linguistic understandings are transferable from language to language. um, And for their... um, for the health of their family unit, mm-hmm. I think that's really important, mm-hmm. right? To be able to speak with grandma.
0: Right. To have that intimacy, right? It's, with your family.
1: And honestly, when my mm-hmm. teachers told my mom that, my mom struggled with that because, of course, you want to you know, the, you respect the teacher. But at the same time, she's like, how am I going to speak with my children? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and I'm glad that that choice was made and I don't think she had much of a choice in a sense of she didn't know much English so <laughs> it was either she mm-hmm. communicated with us or she didn't so um, I'm grateful because if not I wouldn't have had my language mm-hmm. right and it's that, part of who I am um, there's something else you were talking about too that I wanted Get to boxes. Oh, oh yes okay <laughs> no it's interesting that you say that okay that's what I wanted to um, go back to uh, one of the teachers that I interviewed of, of those six she was, um, she was about 30, right? So she's a grown woman, mm-hmm. um, and her father was Argentine, and her mother was white, and her mother would always check white because she could pass as white. I mean, she was tall, but very brown, European, Huber, very European, mm-hmm. yeah. She could definitely pass as white. Um and she became a Spanish teacher and she struggled so much. And when I invited her to be part of my study, she's like, My mom always told me I wasn't, but I'd love to be Latina. Like right? Like <laughs> I I would love to be part of your study. I'm like according to my definition of Latina, you totally are. She's mm-hmm. like, Oh, so she was, you know, so excited. Mm-hmm. Um but when I'd ask her, I'm like, So how would you define yourself? Like which term would you use? Mm-hmm. And that really across the board, they're like, I don't know, which one do I use? Latina, Hispanic, uh Argentine? Like which which one should I use? You tell me. And I'm like, no, you tell me. <laughs> you get to define yourself. Right. And she told me that since her mom started, um, quite opposite of what you did, her mom would mark the box white. Mm-hmm. And she goes, well, I've always marked white because my mom always said I was white. But I, how could I do that? Can I change? Can I change why I am? Isn't that going to mess up the numbers, right? And I just thought, wow, we've been framed in these boxes. Mm-hmm. We've been told what to do. We have this like limiting language of what identifies us. And we feel we have to fit these boxes Mm -hmm. and we don't again, going back to that notion that our identities are ever in flux.
2: Right.
0: Right, so, and so many things that we don't know. I remember right. I lived in Oklahoma briefly, mm-hmm. um, just to share a little bit. And I, you know, there's a lot, there's a large um, indigenous presence in in the state. Right, um, and I uh, uh, went to visit a museum. It was, it was a cultural uh, center uh, with indigenous culture and it, about indigenous communities. And um, and I went, you know, I went in there and I was going to pay my um, my fee right. and the and the woman looks at me and she's like are you one of us <laughs> and i thought it was mm-hmm. funny i'm like oh I, i'm like well i don't know but i i want to say no <laughs> um, uh, but who knows right and the funny thing is that um after i went through the center and saw pictures and think i saw somebody that look like a tía that mm-hmm. i have i'm like hmm we share much more than we think we do, right? And, and there's so much that we don't know. Um, so, yeah, the boxes are, can be um, or are limiting, right? Um, can we have more, more choices, right? Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Those, um, that experience, I, it always, I, I always remember that, right? People, um, also people trying to find that kinship, right, with others and see. So we're, we're more alike in many ways that we're different. Um, This weekend, um, we had a a Heritage Language Summit, Um, and although we are expanding our conversation to include different communities, not just Latinx, um, especially um, celebrate the diversity and cultural linguistic wealth of Ohio students, uh, we focus discussions on issues of biliteracy. Um, I believe you and Oregon have been able to interview students who have attained the seal of biliteracy granted by the state. So can you share with us some of the things um, students are saying? What is the value for our students, our schools, and our communities when students attain this seal? Right. Um, I think I
1: should point out that the students with whom I've been working um, have all taken part in a dual language program. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think when we think of bilingual education, that looks so differently across United States, across districts, across schools, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I, that's something that should be clear with the students that I've been working with specifically. And it doesn't mean that every school in Oregon has a dual language program, mm-hmm. but these particular students do. And what caught my attention um, about these students is that a lot of them, or all of the students with whom I've worked um, are particular in this program they started dual language education from kindergarten in 2001, mm-hmm. um, and thereafter. So, graduates, high school graduates from 2014 and on, have had the opportunity to engage in dual language education and also have received a seal of biliteracy. So, it's a slightly different experience than having um, attained it just by taking some world language classes and taking the AP exam, which is one way. Mm-hmm. There are multiple ways of earning the seal of biliteracy, mm-hmm. um, which is something that is an important conversation to have across, right? Like how, how, st- how folks uh, receive the seal of biliteracy, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I'll go ahead and focus on mm-hmm. these students. And I point that out because as I was interviewing these students, asking them this, what, what are the benefits of the seal of biliteracy? they kept talking about the dual language program, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, And for many of them, it was the experience of going through the dual language program that really spoke to them, that really resonated with them. And I think that's the the lasting legacy Mm -hmm. of the program. And what really stood out to me, because we often focus when we think of the seal of biliteracy, we think of the four domains of language and culture. (laughs) And we Mm -hmm. think of how are we going to assess this? A lot of the conversation is, how are we going to assess uh, their language skills so for them to qualify, for them to earn this seal? And what I heard the students saying was family, mm. community. And so I started to explore that a little bit more. And truly, for many of these students, if not all, this notion of family and community is what really spoke to them, what they walk away from. Advocating for each other, understanding each other in ways that they realize, had they not been together, they wouldn't have understood each other. Um, things of although they didn't name it as tracking, it was tracking. When they said, "Had it not been for the dual language program, I never would have taken a class with some of my with some of my dual language classmates," mm-hmm. um, and and speaking of that, both ways in a sense of had some Latina students. Um, I'm thinking of the Lat- and actually Latino as well. So uh, both who would say it was my teacher, my dual language teacher, who pushed me to be in the AP class, mm-hmm. and um, and then talking about how odd it felt to be the only right or one of very few mm-hmm. Latinx students in a um, in an AP class that wasn't Spanish AP, right? Um, and then having the the white students say I never would have maybe PE I would have taken classes but I wouldn't have taken class and actually gotten to know who they are mm-hmm. and so for them that experiential experience, that experiential learning mm-hmm. was so important for them um and having formed that community you know there are examples there so one student shared with me how um there was a student that Either the student was, or a family member was undocumented, and so they had been deported and she goes, "There's so many folks in a school that never would have known this this person mm-hmm. because they were so quiet, they you know they kind of were in the shadows, but they are my classmate mm-hmm. and it really makes made her aware that undocumented. what you know the, the power." Of, of being undocumented in the sense of they really could be deported, mm-hmm. right? And that reality of losing a friend, of losing a classmate. Um, and then there's another student uh, a little bit more lightheartedly. He's like, we're like this dysfunctional family. But, you know, <laughs> most families are dysfunctional, so it works, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and another student, and this is what really kind of spoke to me because we do talk about when we speak of the benefits of the seal of biliteracy, a lot of it is being marketable. Mm -hmm. right this uh which is true when you when you're bilingual you do have the ability to engage in 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 more conversations and in businesses now we're becoming a much more global society so yes you are but when a student said in a white student in particular uh because sometimes we we um it's like some programs i hear the the narrative of Oh, that's for the Latino students, for them to have a community space in the school. Mm-hmm. So when a white student said, you know, I suffered with depression. And had it not been for this community, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have made it through high school. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, so this is a community amongst all of these students. Right. And one student, because the, the, the program has continued, his little brother or siblings are in the program. And he goes back and he, he actually, and this is something also that struck me, that a lot of the students, if they're close by, they, that have graduated mm-hmm. from the dual language program, they give back by volunteering. Mm-hmm. So that, again, is another familial mm-hmm. way of being still part of this, right? They've graduated, but they're, they still feel connected. And they will volunteer specifically with those students. Mm-hmm. So he was sharing how um, his little brothers, like the, their neighbors and they have a, a white family uh, neighbor and that little, the little boy in that family is learning Spanish and he'll come over and, um, and speak with his mom. And he's like, I think it's just so, like, I think he uses the word like warming, like it's mm-hmm. so heartfelt that to see this little white boy talking to his mom in Spanish, mm-hmm. right. And, and building community mm-hmm. and you know, he, he goes on to talk about food, how food, like his family makes las carnitas mm-hmm. and the other family, they can things and they share food. Mm-hmm. And those are practices that have been modeled in the program that they then bring out into the community and they build like this extension of community. Mm-hmm. And I think
0: that's so important mm-hmm. just for humanity. Right, right. So for the seal for the students have has meant more than just uh, a stamp- so that they can get a better job, but it means community and me, it means giving back. It means validation too.
1: Yes. And um, just because I'm speaking of community doesn't mean that they didn't get the rigor mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. of of the language. Right. right. And they do speak to that. Um, there was one student who, um, Mexicano and he self-identifies as, he's like a Mexican-American and he appreciates not only learning more about the Hispanic culture, but the critical lens um, of, the, of, of of how it was presented to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and also he does speak to that, that he's like, you know, when I go for a job interview and I say, I have the seal of biliteracy, they look at me and they're like, well, yeah, just because they assume mm-hmm. that because he, he looks Latino and he is Latino, that he's going to speak Spanish. And that he is bilingual, and he's like they don't get like his cousin didn't go through the bilingual uh, or the dual language program. He didn't go th- through these extensive language courses, um, and he doesn't speak Spanish. Right? He, his mm-hmm. his cousin's language isn't as as rich as his is, mm-hmm. and he he actually says he's like sometimes I have to like interpret for my cousin and my mm-hmm. aunt, mm-hmm. and now his his older cousins who have children their children don't speak spanish. Mm-hmm. Like so it isn't just something that because i'm mexican i have it. Mm-hmm. Like people have to understand that if you don't it's hard work. <laughs> it's work and if it isn't nurtured mm-hmm. you know like it has to be nurtured and it has to um you have to work at it. Mm-hmm. And he goes, but at the same time so while this well uh, he you know he interviews for a job and he says he's bilingual, the employer's like, "Well, yeah, like there's this assumption mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. um when his colleague, who is the white peer who also went through the dual language program, and they're friends and they understand, you know, they, they mm-hmm. get along. But he's like, when she goes for a job interview, it's a completely different response. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, wow, you went through the dual language program? Good for you. Mm-hmm. Right? So there is that difference mm-hmm. um, that I think just has to be noted. <laughs> right, right.
0: Um Ohio does not offer bilingual education, uh, but we do have some schools with a large number of um, Latino students and some that have some form of immersion prog- program. So, for example, we have a Spanish Immersion Academy and a French Immersion Academy. Um, despite not having bilingual education, teachers have students who are heritage language learners, many, um, and for mo- from multiple language, and they're growing up bilingual. How can K through twelve educators create an atmosphere that nurtures students' abilities, that bring that into the classroom?
1: Mm-hmm. I think that goes back to culturally sustaining um, pedagogy. Um, I have had the opportunity to teach in m- many different contexts, um, and sometimes, I mean, you're right. Not like I said, starting off. Mm-hmm. Bilingual education looks differently across the United right. States. Um, I think nurturing that community, allowing students to have maybe their clubs, right, outside mm-hmm. of school, mm-hmm. engaging. Um, but bringing it into the classroom, there's so many ways that you can have lessons and really get to know your students. Um, so I'll do things in my own classroom. I teach a class called Partnerships and Ideologies in ESOL Education. Um so, for example, when my students introduce themselves with, with their names, mm-hmm. I, I, m- I make names a priority, and, and it can be because I completely understand how names can change. Mm-hmm. So my name, my given name, is Soria Elizabeth Colomer Pineda, mm-hmm. right? Somewhere along the line, I became Soria, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting because I talk about names, and my students will call me out, yeah, it's like, well, why don't you reclaim your name? Mm-hmm. You always say Soria or Soria. And I'm like, okay. So I'm working to reclaim my name, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so with my students, when we introduce ourselves, I'm like, how did you come to have your name? Who chose mm-hmm. your name? And the, the stories can be hilarious. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one story where um, the her dad had wanted a particular name and, um, and it happened to be like the name of his ex-girlfriend. And the mom was like, no, we are not going to do that, right? <laughs> to things like, well, it, it was my grandfather's name, mm-hmm. right? Or it was like, there's always something. And some students automatically have a story and other students are like, I don't know. They just gave me a name. I'm like, think about it. Mm-hmm. And by the end, like by the time I give them some time to think, they have a little something, mm-hmm. right? Whether it was like, it was my mom's, Favorite actress at the time. Okay, there's a story, right? We start there. Right. And then the next class, we focus a little bit more on our stories. Like maybe we retell the notion of framing, right? Um, so I'll ask them to take a picture, any picture that they have, and tell the story that it tells. And then I tell them to crop it or, 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 or make it fuzzy or mm. however they change this picture, zoom in on something. What do you really want us to know? You know, so it might be a picture of, like, when they were in high school, their cheerleading squad, and everybody's happy, mm-hmm. right? But then they zoom in on, like, their knee, mm-hmm. random, right? It's like, no one knew. I, like, i just torn my ligament or whatever it was, mm-hmm. and, and I couldn't cheer again. So that was, like, happy but so bittersweet, mm-hmm. right? Or um, I had another student who you could see him, like, kissing someone, mm-hmm. but then he zoomed out, and it was his boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And sharing that how difficult it was for him to come out in high school. He was mm-hmm. so terrified, but when he did, he felt so good and so loved, you know, but he just didn't know. So those stories. Um, so then we start talking about, because it is ideologies and partnerships in ESOL, um, I've included a lot of the sociopolitical context that's mm-hmm. going on. And at that time, by that time, we can have some real conversations mm-hmm. because they know each other. Mm-hmm. And I think building that is really important. Um, And so I think if we can get into the practice as teachers to know our students and to create these spaces um, that are humanizing Mm -hmm. in the classroom, I think students will feel more at ease um, and more vulnerable, like being okay with being vulnerable Mm -hmm. to bring in their community. Um, and practices from home. Mm-hmm. Um because for so long we've had this this is what we do at home, this is what we do at right. school. Mm-hmm. Um not only linguistically but culturally. Mm-hmm. Um and we, we would have like a long way to go in, in some mm-hmm. spaces, right? I'm not saying and it's not easy. Um but I think we have to create those spaces in our classrooms. Mm-hmm. Um so for the minoritized folk, um I think allowing for that diversity in the classroom um, and, and, and encouraging it mm-hmm. and then also outside of the classroom uh, allowing for clubs perhaps right, um, and then also finding ways of how can we provide um, programs like bringing the community together to see is there, are there enough students here where we can have a dual language program mm-hmm. or even a class or, or something, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yesterday during the the conference, there was was it Indiana that they were passing right. a, a, on, on on ethnic, ethnic studies. Mm-hmm. That's a start, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? And I'm sure not every classroom is going to have it, like right now, mm-hmm. right? But that's a start. So, like, how can you think? Well, if this is our population is shifting, how can we uh, think down the line of providing programs and classes that will be more um, culturally sustaining for these students.
0: I was happy to learn about that biology class, too, um, (laughs) that was um, at at the elementary level. I can't remember, middle Mm -hmm. school, um, that was taught um, in in, in English and Spanish, and they found the book, you know, the science book that was in English and Spanish, and 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 so that was wonderful to me that they're thinking outside the box they're thinking of different models and they're also thinking about their student population and how to best nurture some of that the language the, the identity and and bring it into the classroom and although not everybody and they share this right not everybody in the classroom um was latino or hispanic or bilingual um, uh, a heritage learner per se um there were other students in there but it it created a community where it was nurturing for for all that were there and i was happy to hear that i hope that they find a way to continue that um that model in in that class and in, in any other class yeah cuz they even said that everyone scores right. were beyond mm-hmm. their peers who hadn't been in the program so aside from the effective you know uh, 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 benefits of it um also the um grades and scores like academic, right? academically right, right. Mm-hmm. um so I, I wanna i have a couple more questions sure. for you <laughs> um can you define um translinguaging and its role in bilingual education and biliteracy efforts and i don't know if this is also um um a way to to make an inclusive classroom right when you, especially when working with heritage learners
1: um for me when i read the book by Garcia and Way what really spoke to me is that it's grounded in social justice, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And bilingual education has traditionally been seen as as these silos, right, of Mm -hmm. learning English really well, learning Spanish, or whichever two languages. Um, And being bilingual, it was freeing to see this idea of, yes, I do um, find myself on this continuum but there's this richness in between. Mm -hmm. And I think and flow between these languages, especially as someone who, as we shared earlier, right, had been told, no, you need to speak English all the time to learn English, Mm -hmm. Um, to acknowledge that, yes, I do speak English, but I speak Spanish too. And I speak it, I have these different varieties that flow Mm -hmm. all the time. Um, So for me, translanguaging, um validated that fluidity mm-hmm. for me um and I see that in our classrooms where even if it's being conducted in English, my mind might still flow in Spanish mm-hmm. and whatnot, right um so I think for classrooms where you have students whose minds flow in different languages. Um, It allows them to embrace that Mm -hmm. and to have new forms of knowledge accessible to them. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, to build community. Um, I've sat in classrooms where teachers haven't... It's been very rigid. No, it's English time right now, so you are to speak in English, you are to think in English... And I think it might stump students, Mm -hmm. right? So, and it is a very, it's contentious in the sense of, but shouldn't we, um, because input is really important when Mm -hmm. learning a language, right? So how much fluidity can we allow for that? And yet students have enough input. And I think a lot more research needs to be done Mm -hmm. in, in that area. But from the aspect of giving me the freedom to think in both languages mm-hmm. um, and, and to embrace that, I think that is really important. Um, so, yeah. I, and that's j- just for me, because I, I know people interpret translanguaging differently. Mm-hmm. But what really spoke to me was that validation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that a bilingual thinks differently right. and that, yes, we can switch from language to language. And people tend to um, to use it synonymously with code switching. Mm-hmm. And to me, code switching is a part of translanguaging, but it isn't exactly synonymous. To me, translanguaging, um, it goes back to that validation of having the skill to choose when to use words. Because sometimes people think, um, oh, they just don't speak any language Mm -hmm. very well. Um, But there's a fluidity in when you know both languages well. Like, when someone just throws in a a Spanish word in their English, it's like, no. Like, I don't know. Like, we know when it's flowing, right? We know Mm -hmm. how to try. There's like a certain transition, Mm -hmm. right, into how these languages work and flow together. Mm
0: -hmm. Soria, is there anything else you would like to share with our audience about the work that you're doing, um, about dual language programs, or anything that you would like to share with us?
1: Oh, there's so much. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I really have... Right now, I'm enjoying working with my team at Oregon State. Um, last year, we w- the state um, approved our dual language specialization. And there's a lot of work that goes into that. And it definitely is a team effort. Um, and right now, we're developing courses. So not only do we have ESOL in bilingual education, we have um, this dual language specialization. Mm-hmm. and um, it's been really enriching working with the the teachers that I'm um, providing a space for them in the sense of the new classes that we're we're providing for them. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a long way to go. We in recruiting teachers, I think because in the past, I and mean, I think. When we think of bilingual education now, we have to think of it in the context of the history of bilingual education and language education in the United States, and it's been a struggle, right? Um, I think it's it's wonderful that we have these seals of biliteracy and we have, that we're thinking of bilingual education in a positive way, Mm -hmm. but it's been a struggle, and I think that needs to be acknowledged that, you know, a few generations behind, and even still now, like, there are folks who embrace bilingual education, but we still live in a context that it isn't completely embraced by mm-hmm. general society, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that needs to be acknowledged. And historically, I mean, you know, I'm not that old, but <laughs> my parents were, you know, I was told that I had to speak English at home. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not that long ago. right? How do we find enough bilingual teachers? Because for so long, we silenced our bilingualism, we, we, we weren't acknowledged for it. We were, we weren't sustaining our language and it wasn't always by our own choice, Mm -hmm. but that's what happened. So now a few generations later, it is so difficult to find bilingual educators. And so I hope that this shift not only encourages this new, this generation to embrace their identity, to embrace their language. Like we need that. Um, and not only for jobs, we do need it for jobs, we do need bilingual teachers, but just for the health of the community. And not just for the health of the Latinx community, minoritized communities, but for us to be able to engage with each other. That's something that when I started doing this research and um, in interviewing the the bilingual teachers, right, um, and it was really interesting because when I, I first met one of the high school bilingual teachers when I moved to Oregon, I'm like, oh, wow, you're going to teach me so much. This is so wonderful what you're doing. And she goes, I don't know what I could teach you. And I'm like, I don't think they realize how much, like, they're pioneers, right? Because a lot, and not only the bilingual education teachers in Oregon, but folks that I know that have started programs in Illinois or or Georgia, Mm -hmm. um, they've had to create their materials as they've gone along, right? right? Um, They've had to translate books. They've had to argue with state departments that they need. I had a colleague in Georgia who, um, as she was building the dual language program, she'd go to the state and say, okay, we need a Spanish language arts class. And it was so funny because the person at the state was like, we don't have a number for that. She goes, I know you don't have a number for that. It's a new class. I'm telling you, we need to create. We need how, how do I go about creating this new class? And it was this like communication disconnect mm-hmm. because the person at the state kept saying, we don't have a number for that. We don't have a number for that. That course doesn't exist. And she goes, I know, right? So they went on and on. But, you know, how, and when you start this dual language program, at least in her case, they would have to meet during the summer to create their lesson plans um, and to create materials sometimes mm. because they didn't have that. Right. So every year it was these teachers going, like, above and beyond to create the materials, right? And I find that with some of the teachers in the programs that I've been working with. Um, so it, it it in the students that's something else that they'd speak of. It's like it takes a special teacher to do all of this work. And so when I was speaking with the bilingual ed teacher, um, or the, specifically this dual mm-hmm. language high school teacher, um, she's like, you know, even the student who doesn't who comes out maybe the least proficient academic in the academic languages, I go, she goes. What they do come out of the program is this ability to engage with folks in a community sense. Mm -hmm. This ability to be with other people that I find students who don't go through the bilingual ed program, the dual language program, they don't do so as fluidly. Mm -hmm. So it's not just about the language. Um, And when it comes to culture, it's sometimes it's going back to that example i gave of that teacher saying out uh, to the guatemalan child mm-hmm. like they don't know chocolate tamales right mm-hmm. because of this one artifact in this textbook right that becomes this notion of culture mm-hmm. and to me that is a cultural artifact but perhaps not for all what, mm-hmm. what you know folks okay. from guatemala uh and what i found in the dual language program is this organic culture that was being lived and and created day by day Mm -hmm. across cultures, Mm -hmm. across these communities. And just as the students would talk about tracking of, you know, I never would have seen, I never would have gotten to know Mm -hmm. this person had it not been for the dual language program. It also extends out into the community, right? And they said, you know, I live in this predominantly white space, even in a small community. Um, I wouldn't have gone to that side of the of town, mm-hmm. right? So again, just like for that student who they got to share food, and it just so happened that he had to, happened to have a white neighbor. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for the students who did live in very different neighborhoods, it got them to see each other's
0: neighborhoods, right, and listen to each other's stories too,
1: and. When you actually are in another neighborhood that you've never been in, in your same town, Mm -hmm. that says something. Because that's where I think society, we create these divisions and we live in a very divided society Mm -hmm. out of fear of the unknown, Mm -hmm. right? And I think the dual language program, at least in this context, um, started to create bridges
0: Mm -hmm. within a community, Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important,
1: right.
0: Doctora Colomer. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you for traveling from Oregon to be with us here at the Heritage Language Summit uh, this weekend. Y por esta conversación. Ah, muchísimas gracias. It's been a pleasure. A todos, gracias por escucharnos y recuerden seguirnos en Facebook y de compartir este podcast con otros. Hasta la próxima. <laughs>